Hey, everybody, how's it going? Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to say that um, this episode with Mark Houghton is awesome because Mark's in the Pittsburgh Symphony. He's an amazing horn player. He has lots of wisdom to give about uh, auditions and just doing the job, things like that. But actually, Mark also works for Houghton Horns in Keller, Texas. It's his family's business, and they're actually going to start sponsoring the podcast. So I wanted to use this interview as a way for you all to get to know the sponsors of this podcast, what they do, what they're about, who works there, what their mission is. I just am really impressed with the work they're doing, not only in their store and their repair shop and things like that, but they also have a lot of music education resources that they've provided over the years. And so I think it's a really cool thing. I'm excited about their sponsorship. I hope that you enjoy getting to know about that as well. That's enough from me. Let's get into the episode. I hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and on today's episode, I'm really excited to be speaking with Mark Houghton who is third horn in the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra and is also uh, part owner of Houghton Horns in Texas. And uh, we're just going to try to talk about all the different things related to his career, both sides of his career, things he's learned, things that uh, he wishes that uh, he could share, all the kinds of things. Uh, First of all, thank you, Mark, for being willing to join me and chat with me. Hey, it's my pleasure, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, let's just start with going back as far as you feel is relevant to kind of get a, a picture of uh, where you came from, who you are, kind of coming through, and then we'll just take it from there. Sure. Well, I'll try to give you the, the Reader's Digest version, but <laughs> uh, uh, I was born the son of two professional horn players, believe it or not, uh, which is a little bit weird, of course. Um, but you know, music was always in my life. Um, my mom was playing the Brahms horn trio uh, when I was in the womb, actually. And uh, so so apparently there's some, by osmosis, maybe there's some something going on there. But uh, that piece is special for many reasons, but that's one of them to me and, and to my family. But uh, my parents were always playing when I was growing up. They were always playing horn. Um, and... Uh, I always heard the instrument, so um, it was, you know, really just a part of my life from the beginning. Um, they didn't want to push me into any specific, you know, path uh, in terms of instruments. So they, you know, early on, they, you know, I, I took piano lessons, and they kind of encouraged me to to look in different directions musically. Um, and then I remember at one point just deciding um, that I really, I had such a great opportunity to play the horn because I had teachers right there at home. I, I knew and I appreciated the sound of the instrument. There was something about it that I just, uh, uh, I wanted to go for it, you know. So I'm How glad. How old were you when, you when that happened? Well, geez, let's see. I must have been 10 or 11, you wow. know pretty young. Yeah, I mean, it was 
I didn't know at that point that it's what I wanted to do for real. Uh, and I think that came around like age 16, so a little bit later. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's always been a part of my life. So, and then, so, um, I assume you just did the thing we all did, you know, we played in band in high school. Um, that kind of just kept having a relationship with it until you went into, so you were saying around 16 then is when you maybe decided when you got more serious, what did that look like from going from, this is something I really enjoy doing to this is something I want to do. What kind of shift do you feel like maybe happened mentally or physically? Yeah. Uh, so I grew up in Texas and the music programs in Texas are really amazing actually in, in the public schools. Um, almost everyone in the larger schools at least is, has got a private teacher. The marching band programs are really strong, very competitive and the whole Texas music music educators system is is a very organized top down system. It's very much a merit based system. It you know relies on blind auditions. I mean it's it's an incredibly well organized machine, and I really I have a lot uh, I I owe a lot I guess to that to that uh, experience growing up. And it was my sophomore year of high school that I, I really sort of started to grasp the, the feeling of preparing etudes and, and preparing an audition, I guess, um, if you can call it that, um, very thoroughly, right? And, and actually going and, and making it a reality and playing the way that I wanted to play and the way that I could play. And that was kind of a, a turning point, I guess, for me. And then I, I kind of, it, it kind of caught fire at that point, I guess. So, I, I just, it, it became a dream of mine to play in an orchestra. I thought there was nothing more glamorous than that, you know. Um, yeah. Like I guess we all think that to some degree, and then, um, you know, real life does set in at some point. But, <laughs> but it's still, I mean, I still feel like, uh, like I won the lottery, you know. I mean, when I, when I think about the fact that I, the culmination of all of that is ending up in the, the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra. It's like, I feel like I, you know, I hit the lotto for sure. Um, and I've had a lot of, uh, a lot of disappointment and a lot of good luck and a lot of bad luck. And, and that's just, just the way it goes. But I guess, yeah, it, at some point I just decided that, uh, uh, I enjoyed the process and, um, I try to still enjoy the process of preparation and, um, you know, that, that presentation element, uh, after you've, you've really worked on something. And, um, so I guess that's how it started. And my parents were really encouraging. And of course they were a great resource as well. Um, they were always helping me to take auditions from a young age. I remember they, you know, they were, they knew how cutthroat things were, so they, they encouraged me to take auditions from a very early age. And I believe I took my first professional audition when I was a senior in high school for the San Antonio Symphony. Wow. And it was really strange when I think about it, you know, even now, um, but I'm glad they, they encouraged me to do that because they just said they knew how it was. I mean, they... They never had a job like the one I have, you know, um, and so they 
they knew that it's just like a test taking sort of skill. You know, you, you have to be able to, uh, you know, the smartest people don't necessarily ace the test on, on an organized test, right? Like the SAT or something. So they knew it was the process and they knew that the sooner I started, the, the more success I would have and the more I would understand the process. So they, they sort of just knew that from experience. And then they would, as much as they could, money was always tight, but they would, they would help me to pay for plane tickets to go take auditions when I entered college. And, and uh, I guess, um, you know, that, that was a big part of, of my early success in, in auditions, but I don't want to jump too far ahead, put the cart before the horse, but um, yeah, I, uh, the Texas sort of banned environment and that competitive environment and the, the sort of the excellence that was expected all the time, um, that was uh, very formative for me. Um, and then I, I ended up going to the Eastman School of Music in Rochester um, when I graduated high school. And again, a really great place to be. Um, and all the while I was taking, as much as I could, taking professional auditions. I wasn't taking like Chicago and Philly professional auditions. I was taking smaller you know, orchestras that I thought I could have a, a shot at, really. Um, and that proved to be a pretty good route. Um, because it turned out that I would I would end up making finals for a couple jobs, um, or I would advance, you know, uh, in some of these smaller orchestras like San Antonio and Kansas City at one point. Um, so it was just a little taste of you know, to remind me that I'm, I'm on the right track and I I got to keep going with this. Um, there were some things in school that you know I sort of I wish I could go back and counsel my younger self, be a little more thorough. Um, and I, I could have developed other aspects of my playing, I think, when I was in school, if I was more, had a more well-rounded approach. I was so hyper-focused on being successful at an audition that um, that kind of took, it kind of took all of my energy at that time. So, you know, of course, different, you know, different approaches you, you might take looking back at your life and career, but, uh, I am where I am. And, you know, I've, I think I've since, ha you know, gone back and been able to sort of patch up some of those things, but. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I get asked sometimes, you know, I'm really into practice organization and all that kind of stuff. So one of the questions I get asked sometimes is, well, when you are preparing for something or you're not preparing for something, how do, how does your practice change? And yeah, one of the things uh, I, I sort of share is at some point when you're preparing for something that's important to you, there's a sacrifice involved where you're not going to be working on something else that you could be working on because you're hyper-focused on this thing that you really have to give all of your effort for. And ideally, we see the value in doing that because we'll either learn about the process or we'll win the audition or whatever. But um, it is a real reality of sacrificing, I think, parts or certain aspects or even just your general you know, progression, getting better generally at your instrument to get better at this one thing. I don't know if you have more thoughts about what you feel like some of those sacrifices might have been for you and like what you're talking about patching things up later. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, 
there were sort of nuts and bolts things as a player that I I had to go back and sort of pick up later, <laughs> I guess. I um, and I think I've pretty much done that, um, but I I like to still get under the hood quite a bit. Um, I don't think we're ever really finished with that with that stuff. But um, I my plan was never I guess my plan was never to go to undergrad at a you know a conservatory or or a university and then plan for grad school I always planned to get a job as soon as possible if if I could get a job before I even got a degree I probably would have even though that has its disadvantages as well so I guess um in my pursuit of learning how to play an audition um there were other things that that didn't develop you know uh, and I learned, I learned the hard way in some regard um, earlier in my career that's like, you know, I've got to sit down and figure out what's going on. Um, I think that, you know, event, it all turned out fine, um, but but there were definitely things that my teacher at Eastman, Peter Curau, would would assign. Uh, he He's just a tremendous, you know, resource. Um, in terms of horn and and studying and and just knows all of the literature and he would he would assign things like uh there was i remember there was like a a course called calisthenics and it was just like all these patterns and different books and schlossberg and clark and um you know all these things and i totally blew that off i mean i really like i really could have benefited from it too right, right that's right. the thing is but I had to kind of go back and do that later because there were holes in my playing later. So that, in I guess I guess it's um, if I could live two lives and do do it both ways and, and experience both directions, I, I would have maybe taken more time with that sort of thing. Maybe focused on a grad school like like a like more of a finishing school. Had it you know focused to get like a different type of teacher um, after my undergrad so that you have that balance that a lot of you know, great professionals have, um, but I kind of learned on the job. So, I mean, that was good and bad, right? So, yeah, I was going to ask if you feel like you saying it worked out. That's a that's like a by defines my life to a T. You know, it just worked out. But I don't necessarily try to encourage people to live their lives the way that I lived my life because there's just a lot of sort of uh, anxiety that was involved with like, is this going to work? I'm putting all of my eggs in this basket, right. and if it doesn't work. Like you believe there's no way it won't work, but just because it did work out doesn't mean that there's not a problem to address afterwards like you're describing and that to encourage people to do it the other way, to address these problems as part of the process. Maybe it takes you slightly longer to get Mm -hmm. there, but you are a more complete whole individual going through that process. Uh, Would you sort of say that is your approach to it as well? Or are you thinking that basically... However you get there, we'll fix up the gaps later. You know what I mean? You kind of addressed it, but I'm curious if you um, might go going more in depth. Yeah, I think it depends on the person. I mean, most really talented, if I have the chance to work with talented students, I I, I try and get them to pursue the most conventional routes. Um, that said, I also encourage them to start taking auditions very early. I think that's really important for anybody who's serious about uh, performance um, in this field, and uh, I think it's also uh, 
it's strange because it's that conundrum of, you know, you you send your resume to take an audition and 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 maybe they discourage you because you don't have any experience. It's like, well, how do you get experience? You got to take auditions, right? right? I mean, so it's like that chicken egg right. thing. Um, and I think the earlier you start that process, the better. And I, I, I mean, that's one aspect where I think I, I really got it right. And, and I have my parents to thank for that as well. Um, I think the part of the problem lies in the fact that the degree essentially as a performance major, it doesn't really mean that much. And I was always kind of, that was always in my mind, um, is that, you know, the person who plays the best, I mean, if we really, again, like it's, we were talking before and you said it's, I mean, it's not a perfect system, but it's the best system we have. And we like to believe that it's largely merit-based, right? So that the, la- the last person standing is is the best player. And it doesn't mean that they're the best player every time or every week. It just happens to be that day. So I, th- I thought all I need is to be the best player on that day. Um, and it's, it's an achievable goal, you know, if you're, if you're prepared, um, you know, that said, I mean, I, my first, the first job that I won was right out of, uh, my undergrad, um, it was principal horn in the Phoenix symphony. And I was 22. So I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> I don't know why they hired me. You know, I mean, it's, it's like kind of amazing. They didn't even want to, Apparently, the, the the music director uh, wanted to give me some trial, like a three or six month something or other. It was it was really unconventional, and and I have uh, John Lofton to thank. Uh, he's you know, of course bass trombone in L.A. Phil now, but he was playing in Phoenix uh, at the time, and I didn't know him at all. But he heard something in my audition that. Uh, you know, he he stood up for me and went and talked to the conductor of the maestro and said, hey, listen, you got to give this guy a tenure track a year, you know, whatever the standard the standard opening contract. Um, and he fought for me, which is really cool. Um, and, uh, you know, grateful. Shout out to John to, to this day. I mean, that was <laughs> that was huge. And, you know, he and, and a lot of other people around me were really supportive and they put up with a lot of, you know, stupid shit. Yeah, basically. Um, yeah. I was I was learning the ropes, you know, and uh, I had ups and downs. The first season or two was was dicey. There were good performances, and there was, uh, you know, I remember just feeling, I, I was definitely, I think, the youngest, I was definitely the youngest principal player and probably, probably at that point, the youngest player in the orchestra. And I was just, you know, your life is in a completely different place than most of the people around you. And so that was really difficult for me. Um, And I also was just intimidated by coming into a situation where all of these highly experienced musicians uh, are, you know, they're doing their thing. And, and, and I felt almost like unworthy, you know, to to be on stage. It's, it's a really strange, you know, looking back, it seems strange. um, But, but it's not really when in context. Um, so it took a while to sort of get my footing there. I think by about the third season, I was pretty, I was pretty secure in in terms of my ability to do the job. Um, and uh, so I spent, let's see, this two thousand two to two thousand five was in Phoenix um, 
played a lot of great rep. Um, and then I won an audition for the Fort Worth Symphony as principal horn in 2004, but I didn't start actually until 2005. Um, and so I had a lot of success early on with auditions. I was in Fort Worth for nine seasons, and I probably took nine or ten auditions during the time I was there, and I only advanced in one of them. <laughs> and that was the one that I had, the job that I have now, actually. So wow. I had a, a long period of drought and a big sort of swath of disappointing results. It was just, I felt like I... I had become extremely good at doing the job and extremely bad at auditioning. You know, and it's amazing how quickly that can happen and, yeah. uh, and, and how difficult it is to keep up both ends of that, especially if you're in a principal chair, right? I mean, um, because I would go in and, and have an incredible week of, of playing on stage, get rave reviews and, you know, play Chike 5 or whatever it was. And, uh, and then I'd go take an audition for a big job and just not represent myself whatsoever. It was like it was another player playing. Right, right. Um, so I, it, that was tough. I went through a, a very tough... I mean, my wife can tell you all about it. Um, and uh, family was really supportive during that time, but it was, it was, uh, it was really like, am I, am I capable of moving on? Am I destined to stay? I mean, it's, it's not that I ever had a bad situation either. I just, uh, all the places I played, I, I had great experiences and great colleagues that I still keep in touch with. Um, but there came a point where I suppose just artistically, I, I felt like, uh, you know, I really wanted to see what, what the next level was like in terms of, of orchestras. And uh, um, so then you're, you know, you're, reaching for that sort of next tier and of course that's a that's a giant step like it's you know we tend to forget how uh how much difference there can be um uh and and the the level of players that that you're competing against in those top tier jobs so uh i um let's see i owe a lot to the person that really helped me sort of get over the hump and i think get to that next level uh, was Bill Vermeulen uh, mm. down at Rice, and uh, of course Principal Horn in Houston, and and I, you know I mean, had he's s- like the guy. Sorry, he's like the person, right? For especially for auditions, he's had so much success with his students, right? He he's an amazing pedagogue. I mean, he really I don't know anybody better in terms of coaching, uh, coaching people for for audition success and. Um, it's also the psychological element that he, if you do the work and you're and you're um, and you're ready to take some heat, right? Um, working with him can he can he can convince you that you're capable of something that you might have felt you weren't capable of before. Uh, so that's huge as a teacher, and I try and um, I try and take some of that uh, and, and pass that on to my students as much as I can, but. But there's something to be said for somebody who is that, who's really honest, but also really encouraging. Um, and so the first lesson I had, was, I was driving down to, let's see, about seven months, this is 2014 when I won the job in Pittsburgh, about seven months prior, 
I was going down once a month. I was driving from Fort Worth to Houston, which is a you know, five-hour drive. Nasty. Um, traffic is terrible. It's, ugh, you know, um, it was a big commitment, you know, and then you're paying for the lesson and then you're, you know, it's, uh, I, I had, um, at the time I had uh, uh, three kids and it was like, you know, I'm leaving my wife at home with the kids all, just that entire day of the week. And it was, it, it was, it was a big sacrifice, but yeah, right. it was also just a, a no brainer. It was something I had to do. And I remember the first lesson I had, first couple lessons, you know, Bill was really brutally honest. You know, he just, he didn't hold back. He said, these are the things you need to fix, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And the list wasn't that long. And he said, look, if you get on these things right now, um, you'll be, you'll, you'll be turning this around in no time in terms of your audition approach. Um, and so I really, I give him a lot of credit for, for that. Um, sometimes it just takes the right coach and the right, the right person, uh, to, to light that fire, you know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Barbara, in my interview with Barbara, you referenced that earlier. One of the things she said in there too was, um, you know, like you said, it's not a choice. It's almost as if it's a clear, a very obvious thing that this is what you should be doing, even if there's sacrifice involved. Of course, like having a family that's supportive and allow, like being like, yes, this is what you should do. Because it's basically a choice of, am I going to figure this out or am I not going to figure this out? You know, it's not like a, I mean, if you're fine with sort of experimenting long term and being in that space, but yeah, it seems like the next best thing is to go seek somebody out who's going to be able to like really kickstart and help you see something that you're obviously struggling to see. So yeah, it seems like, like you said, it's almost like a no brainer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about, um, we could dig into your audition preparation. We could, um, but I, I kind of want to maybe just start and see if this is sufficient. Um, maybe just talk about, elements of a of a great audition preparation right so it could be like recording yourself mock auditions you know what kind of work you do in the practice room like maybe just general elements that we could all sort of take away and think about how we might apply them to uh, our own practice if that's something that you uh, feel like you could do sure um so it's really important to I will say force yourself to perform the excerpts and that's a it's a really it's a really different procedure or approach than just playing through the excerpts or just practicing the excerpts but to really be accountable turn on your recording device whether it's your phone it doesn't matter it doesn't have to be fancy but play a play a 10 minute 15 minute round um you know once a day in you know when you're when you're a month away from the audition, you know, start your preparation. I don't know. Everyone's different, you know, six, eight weeks out. I don't know. Everybody has a different uh, uh, approach and that's fine. But I, th I think that um, for me, what really helped was uh, that, that red light, you know, that I had assigned, you know, I had just decided I was going to record myself. Um, and the closer I got to the audition date, the, the more of these little rounds I was doing. And so I would assign excerpts numbers and I had a random number generator on my phone. It would spit out, you know, 
six, eight, ten random numbers, and then I would just play whatever it spit out. Some days I played well. Most days I knew it wasn't good enough, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But to to not get it's important to not get discouraged, especially in those early days of, of that process, because it's just information. It's, you know, you're, you're just, you're putting pressure on yourself uh, to perform the list or to perform parts of the list. And uh, even if it's just, even if it's just me in a room with a red light blinking, I get nervous. I don't know mm. about you. I, I, I think that's important. Maybe that's weird. Uh, maybe, you know, I know people that, it's more important for them to get in front of other people to play mock rounds. And I think that's great too, but that's part of, you know, everybody needs to find their process, but I found that there's no substitute for uh, getting accustomed to performing the excerpts. And I've fallen into the trap before of, you know, yeah, I'm going to work on this. I'm going to work this out and this and that. And you never really get to the point where you're performing parts of the list so that when you get on stage, it's it's this foreign concept. It's like, oh my god, I'm gonna pl- I'm gonna have to do this once through, <laughs> and it's gonna have to be great. You know, yeah. You don't want to be. You don't want to have that unpleasant surprise. You know, um. So that and and also just for me lately, the mental practice aspect of it is sometimes uh, after a long day of playing and this this is especially true when you're playing a job day in day out and and you're trying to take an audition your face is beat up you, you maybe you had three shows this weekend um you don't really you can't really afford a session right now of of hard playing or or like intense playing so you just go through it mentally and mm. uh th- that sort of visualization you know take take six random excerpts and Visualize exactly how you'd want to play them. Um, this is a something that I started doing later, and but it's been hugely helpful. Um, always trying to hear it also in your mind exactly how you would play it if you could uh, on your best day, right? So so never compromising. Uh, you know, going beyond even imagining it, sort of being beyond your current skills, you know, just, just the ma- most amazing presentation of Ravel, you know, for example. Sure. Um, but that's gone really, you know, that's really made a difference to me also, not just for, for audition prep, but if I have something in uh, PSO or some other project that I'm working on, uh, I try and sit down and carve out time for that because uh, you're saving your physical, you know, you're recovering, right? You're saving your physical um uh, your face, right? You're you're not you're not exerting, um, but you're also you're refining mentally what yeah. what your game plan is, and and uh, it's, it's I always think about like the all these cooking shows, and they're they're looking for the perfect bite, you know, uh, that that has everything in it. It's whatever the umami <laughs> and the sweet and the blah blah blah. So I'm always thinking like every excerpt or every every phrase has to be that perfect bite. You know, how can I deliver that? And a lot of times. If you don't, if you don't spend time thinking about it and crafting it up here in in your mind, then you don't really know what you're going to serve. You know, you, you don't know what's going to come up. Uh, so, I think that's really important, and it's another element that I think we we sometimes don't talk about so much. Is that uh, that mental practice is the other? It's the other side of the coin. You know. 
Yeah. So the way I've thought about it is you're just making like a mental model or a blueprint or something like that and it having every single thing. And then it seems like deliberate or deep practice is then you play something and you record and then you just ask, is this what my mental model is? Like, is this the same thing? So let's say you've missed some notes or maybe you didn't, you know, draw a crescendo the way you wanted to or something like that. And it's not quite the same. What does it look like for you to sort of break that apart and try to get it closer to that mental model so you can figure out what's the like when I get what it is that I hear in my head, this most perfect version, what does that feel like? So if I do that, that's what will come out. Like, how do you bridge this gap between where you are and where you want to be in, in general terms? Yeah, I mean, for me, that's where the recording comes in, and that's where the accountability is. Because if I, if if what my concept is doesn't map onto what I'm hearing in the recording, then it's pretty clear what I need to do. Sometimes it's it's surprising because you feel like, uh, you know, this contour, this 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 moment in the phrase, I thought I was really going for that or, or bringing it out. And, it, and in fact, it's not. And how do I get that to happen? And, uh, and vice versa, you know, sometimes you, you want more subtlety and it's just, it's a little over the top. I think that's less often for most people, but, um, that pursuit of, I guess something that it, it doesn't, it maybe doesn't exist, you know, but it's that pursuit of, of, that limitless uh, concept of of how how great this could be, and I'm not sure that I ever got there with with my excerpts. You know, for example, I, I certainly, um, I mean, I think that's what keeps us going, and and we have to be comfortable with the fact that, like, you know, it's it's an ongoing process. You know, what was it like? Casals used to say that, you know, he was well into his 80s or something, and uh, I'm gonna butcher the quote, but, but somebody asked, why do you still practice? You know, he said something to the effect of, because I'm still learning, you know, I'm still getting better. It's still, yeah, I think it's like, I'm starting to see some progress or something right, like something that. Right, something like yeah, that, yeah. yeah. But I mean, that's, it's, it's more of a, you know, just a commitment to, to that ethereal, uh, that excellence that we're all kind of chasing, right? That's going to take uh, a good command of the instrument, though, yeah, to be able to sort of like you hear yourself and you say, okay, that's not, I need more shape, I need less shape, or whatever. To be able to do that just by willpower requires a good command of the instrument. Then I, I assume you would, you would agree with that. So Absolutely. Then, so, like, what does it look like for you to build command of the instrument so that that becomes something you can do sort of by willpower and not having to be like. Because if you don't have that command, then you're gonna have to ask, like, well, what, like, what's going on? Like, what's wrong with it? And if you haven't sort of addressed some of those issues in your playing, so for you, where do you address those issues of learning, like, how do I slur through this thing, or what mm -hmm. is it like to play forte with an easy sound, or like, what do I got to do to play soft and not lose the notes? I'm assuming you don't do that through the excerpts. So what does that look like for you? And like, what is if you're exploring or? Just that kind of general work um, in terms of maintenance and improvement on skills. Yeah, that's just the, the sort of the daily grind. You know, that's the daily, I hate to use the word routine because that has all sorts of connotations, but um, there is a sort of um, uh, baseline approach that I, I like to try and, uh, it's almost like checking 
checking off boxes on a checklist. It's like I, you know, I've covered my my range today. I've covered uh, my my diminuendos, my soft tapers, my uh, explosive sort of color changes, my my soft articulations, the clarity and multiple tonguing and all the. So I have sort of a. I mean, I'm not going to try and explain it here, and I've done some classes on it, but I've kind of developed a thing just for myself that keeps me sane in terms of, uh, you know, bullet points of all of these things. And I try and do, my my philosophy lately is, even if I don't get through the whole list every day, I try and do a little of as much of those things as I can, just sprinkling enough in, right? So if it's four or five minutes per concept, uh, whether that's articulation, flexibility, register, long tone type exercises, attacks, this sort of thing. I'm covering those bases over the course of two or three days. I've really covered all of those bullet points very um, sort of in a thorough sense. But uh, I think it's really important to just to not also not get stuck on one aspect because like we all know what we do well and we all know what we need to work on and obviously uh like i've i've kind of most of the stuff that i that i have to do to maintain that that baseline is stuff that i don't do well mm-hmm, um so sure. you constantly just have to be comfortable with sort of digging in and 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 doing what you can but but to stay positive uh and to know that you're just going to have you're going to have naturally have gifts that uh other people may not have, but then you're also probably going to struggle in other places. Yeah. Um, you know, I think this is, I, I think it's awesome because you've clearly developed something that really works for you and what your requirements are with your job or when you were doing auditions, something that really helps you stay in shape. I assume it took a length of time for you to develop it. It wasn't like, oh, right out of the gate, I know exactly what to do. Um, it doesn't have to be a long answer, but just as a general encouragement for anybody who's out there struggling to figure this kind of thing out, do you have like an idea of a length of time that this has been developing over? So we kind of understand it doesn't happen all at once. Yeah. I mean, there are elements, uh, in this sort of routine, I guess we'll call it, um, that are, have been around since like my undergrad, you know, when I started, but I think it's steadily expanded. And the way that it's expanded mostly is, so I guess what, I started my undergrad in 98, you know, so it's been a while. Um, (laughs) And it's by no means the most, it's by no means the most comprehensive thing uh, for everyone. You know, this is something that works for me. I've I've exposed a lot of students to it. um, And, and I think, Hopefully, people have gotten something out of it, um, but it is it is a little bit geared towards my specific approach um, and what I what I need feel like I need to to work on on a regular basis. So it's taken a while, and it changes. I mean, it it evolves, and sometimes I sort of leave leave things behind and pick up new elements. But a lot of these things are they become interchangeable, so that you can keep it fresh, not not feel like you're sure. t- treading the same ground again and again, right? So that's another <laughs> yeah. challenge. You know, it's really a lifetime pursuit. You know, again, back to the Casals thing. It's like, if we're going to commit to practicing pretty much our whole lives, then we've got we've to do it in a sustainable way, you know? Absolutely. So, um, so I'm just like, we've been talking for almost 40 minutes and I've been sort of 
getting to know you a little bit, and you seem to be a person who um, thrives with like an odd, like you were saying before, like there's an audition there or concerts. Like I have this thing that I'm working for and that's keeping me moving. So what has COVID-19 been like for you to have a lot of that sort of ripped away? How has your practice changed at all? Have your priorities changed? Have Is there like a, a like, like sort of possible blessing that this time has given you? Um, or is it just like really, really hard because like a lot of what we're sort of like our performance related goals and stuff just being taken away is just sort of really difficult. I'm just curious, like what your relationship with all of that has been in COVID and how it might've changed. Yeah. I mean, certainly we've all dealt with challenges. I remember the first week and I, I stopped making predictions about this thing because I thought, oh, it's just going to blow over in you know a week or two. Yeah. I think most of us thought that, um, and of course it didn't. Um, but the first week or two, I, I was having like, like nightmares, like I would, or, or I would feel, you know, it was just constantly on my mind. And then I would, and then I would wake up and think, okay, I'm still dreaming. This has got to change, right? Like this is not the state of the world right now. Crazy time to be alive. You know, I, I didn't live through the sixties or anything. Uh, but this to me is as weird as it gets, you know, and I look back at 9-11 being like a pivotal moment in my lifetime. You know, I remember where I was, at, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but this is this is just as catastrophic and weird uh, in, in a different way, I guess. Uh, I think it's weirder, if, if that makes any sense. But um, yeah, so it's, you got to look for the silver lining. I mean, certainly I have, a, you know, I have a wife and three kids and we're just, we're home a lot more with each other. That has presented a lot of challenges, but it's also, um, it's, you know, we've all gotten to know each other better. At, I didn't even think that was possible, but it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, my practice, you know, it's, it's shifted a little bit, um, I'm working on some sort of bucket list projects that I've wanted to do. Um, and it is more maintenance focused probably than anything right now, uh, practice wise. Um, I've gotten into, um, uh, software for recording and video stuff and done a couple projects like that. I haven't really gotten as far as I wanted to in that regard because that stuff is a black hole for your time. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Um, and it's a big learning curve. You know, I've watched so many tutorials on Final Cut Pro and Logic at this point. I didn't even, uh, you know. Um, but I'm, I'm slowly figuring it out. And it was something that was, that was something I had always wanted to do. So it seemed as good a time as any, probably the best time to dig into that. So I've made some headway there. Still a long list of things I want to get to. Um, I picked up, this is, you'll appreciate this. I picked up a Corno di Caccia, <laughs> um, which is, I mean, how would you even describe it? It's, it's almost like a flugelhorn. Uh, it uses a, kind of like a flugel mouthpiece. Sometimes the solo in uh, uh, Mahler three, the post-horn solo is played on it. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do. Like, I don't know so, how to, yeah, I don't know what a, a good way to describe it other than a really old kind of ancient looking horn, yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of a, um, a project for me to figure out how to play this thing and possibly do some some projects with it, like overdubbing, um with larger horn ensembles, Wagner tubas and horns and 
Conor Dicacci on top. I don't know. I have a lot of these projects that are sitting there, but what, what really has taken the most focus uh, during this time um, is a pivot towards the business, Houghton Horns. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've really, in a sense, it's been really good because I've been able to um, really focus on that. And it's not not that I'm not doing PSO um, related things, um, but there's just less to do. There's simply less going on. We yeah. we have done um, for the brass, uh, um, and it varies a little bit. Uh, there's just been smaller groups, uh, but we have done uh, one or two uh, concert capture um, sequences where they the they record us playing a, a program. So we'll rehearse and, and record that, and that's going to be digitally broadcast. So basically, at this point, we switch to an all-digital fall season. Sure, yeah. Um, so I think that's admirable that we were able to do something. Um, and, uh, of course, everybody's dealing with this, you know, administratively in different ways in different places. So, um, uh, you know, that's just, it's it's part of my life, but I can't wait for it to be back sort of front and center totally. where it where it has been so yeah we'll talk about uh the business in uh just a second i just have one more kind of like question to cap it kind of bring a lot of this this uh discussion together it's something i've thought a lot about because i think you and i um it's interesting like i identify with a lot of the way you've talked about just your process and the way that you've moved forward and the things like the kind of the way your career has gone and one of the things i realized relatively recently is like i chose at 19 years old what i thought i wanted to do for the rest of my life and it seems weird that someone let me do that you know like who <laughs> let me at, at 19 say this is what i want to do when i didn't really know anything about myself you're mm-hmm. even slightly younger uh, choosing around, like you said, like 16 or 17, you're like, this is like what I want to pursue. Have you ever had moments where you've, you've sort of questioned, like, did I make that choice from a place where I knew what I was doing? Or does that make sense what I'm asking? And like, maybe, yes. yeah. So I'm just curious what you're, because obviously you're, you've come through it in a way where you probably still are like, this is what I want to do. So I'm curious what that looked like for you. Yeah, that's a great question and it's something to think about. Um, I just kind of, maybe it was because of uh, the way I was raised with music in my life and my parents being musicians, but what it, what it has given me in terms of, and I have some perspective on it, uh, beyond a way to make a living and sort of a, a discipline is just a, a depth of expression and a, a well from which to draw you know, meaning in, in my life. So, I mean, I, I can't imagine my life without music. Um, can I imagine my life not playing in orchestra? Probably, you know, and this has been a good time to take that for a test drive because right, exactly, I'm really yeah. not doing it. Um, <laughs> and it sucks in a lot of ways, but I'm sure that if I had to, I'm pretty confident in my abilities to make lemonade out of just about any situation. Um, and I, we might really get tested here uh, with that, depending on how much longer uh, this sort of unconventional period of time goes. But um, I, it's I feel like I, you know, I could do other things. Like I, it's also good to know that 
that like I'm pretty confident that I could make it happen if I had to do something else to provide for my family. I'm really fortunate that I get to um, do what I do. And um, I've also tried to expand uh, those skills uh, in terms of, I mean, I teach also at Duquesne University. I have private students. Um, and the business has been a, another huge uh, p- part of the picture. Uh, is I've never sort of taken for granted you know, the, the, the job that I have, uh, in terms of, you know, there's limited job security for any orchestral musician really. Yeah. And I always felt like I need to expand, uh, my involvement in other, uh, pursuits so that I can have a good foundation, uh, in case one of these things doesn't quite pan out the way that I'm hoping, you know? Yeah. You just, it's like you talk to people who, you know, are dealing financial whatevers, right. And they talk about diversification mm-hmm. and that multiple revenue streams means that if one of them kind of falls, you still have all these other ones that can, you know, but we as musicians don't seem to think of that way or do that. We just say, well, I'm going to become a teacher or I'm going to become a player. And that that's the one thing I'm going to put all my eggs into that basket. And yeah, COVID has pretty much shown us that that's not a guarantee, even if we feel like it's supposed to be a guarantee. Um, I mean, we're living, most of us are living that to some extent uh, right now, whether it's a virtual season, other orchestras are taking pay cuts. You know what I mean? Like it's just everywhere, the security that we thought was there. Um, and so I agree with you. I think diversification is a, it's just an interesting conversation to start with yourself sometimes. Like if you haven't even thought like what else could you do? It's yeah. Just starting the conversation sometimes is can lead to weird, interesting places. I feel like. Yeah. And I had lots of friends that, uh, I went to, uh, school with at a conservatory that, you know, many of them are now in administrative positions or sometimes they, go to become, you know, bankers or lawyers or, you know, anyone who's, who's willing to sit in a small room and <laughs> sort of go over minutia and, and attention to detail uh, uh, with perseverance, you know, for long periods of time on a sustained sort of uh, approach. I think that can translate into other disciplines sure. you know what i mean yeah absolutely so, i think it's one of the benefits of music is like it's a weird thing that we do and it will teach you a lot of lessons that can be very valuable outside of music itself yeah i think that's really important for everyone to remember sometimes as a teacher i have to remember that too because not every student that i teach is necessarily going to go on and play in the new york philharmonic it's uh I, i'd be lucky to have one of them that did that but <laughs> but uh Hopefully, they can take that uh, that attention and focus and the refinement, um, uh, the elements of refining a craft, you know, uh, and they can they can apply that to something else. Um, I think we have to be honest about that as teachers that that we're we're teaching more than just the instrument. Sure. So. Well, I think it's cool if we want to move on to the business and sort of talk about uh, this other huge aspect of your life. And um, 
I think if we just start with you describing, you know, this not the sales pitch type thing, but you know, describing like what it is, what you guys do, what you try to provide, and then we'll kind of get into some of the um, the virtuous parts of what you do, and just kind of try to get a full picture. Yeah. So, wow. Uh, let's see how to do this <laughs> concisely. My dad, uh, as I mentioned before, was a horn player. I mean, he still is, but uh, he, he sort of came into music that way and uh, just started experimenting with fixing instruments, cleaning instruments at local schools and stuff. He was teaching private lessons in schools, and then, you know, it happened to be that, like, you know, hey, are some of our instruments need work. Do you think you could take a look at these? And uh, he's largely self-taught um, and has been doing this forever um, and sort of did some apprenticeship work with a couple folks along the way nothing too formal. Um, and so it really started with my dad being sort of the repair guy. Uh, and I cr- kind of grew up that way. And he, he was doing this out of just out of, uh, our home in, in, in his garage for years and years. So that's kind of how it started. He was so focused on that stuff and really not, I guess, didn't have the, the, no, no sort of business training, no larger picture in terms of like he's a craftsman he kind of does his thing with his hands and didn't really wasn't particularly interested in expanding too much beyond that when i got the job in fort worth symphony this was around 2005 i moved back basically back home that's right pretty much where i grew up so i thought and i felt an obligation but i also i was really driven to do it um to you know this is a good time to to get involved with my dad and maybe there's something we can do um business wise um and at the time he had some contacts over in europe uh the biggest one engelbert schmid horns uh he's a a maker in bavaria who uh makes amazing horns um he was looking for dealers and dealerships to expand his offerings in the U.S. And I talked to my dad about it and I said, we, you know, my dad was just kind of like, you know, I'm not sure what I'm going to do about this. And I said, Hey, let's just, let's just do it. Let's, let's start dealing these horns and we'll figure out a way to, to make it happen. So we really started from nothing. Um, and we actually had investors like individual investors pay for, uh, the wholesale cost of some of these first horns and they would get a percentage when they sold. I mean, that's kind of how we started. We started literally with like no cash, mm. uh, which is kind of crazy to think about. <laughs> um, uh, so that's kind of how it started very humbly. And uh, we started to deal more instruments and different kinds and more accessories. And we're always able to offer the service element of on the repair side with my dad's shop. And that's grown significantly. The other part of it, I guess, is my mom, who's been a, a pedagogue, a horn teacher for about 35 years in Texas. Um, she's one of the top teachers, and she's just one of the top, you know, home studios, I guess you would say. Uh, she's taught tons of kids over the years and, and done really well with that. Um, and so I think bringing these elements together, I had sort of the interest in in selling, you know, dealing instruments. I just thought it was 
cool, and I wanted to be able to try and to see and to uh, have uh, a, a grasp on on these products, and then to make them available to people where whereas they they normally wouldn't be or would be very difficult to find. So a lot of the way we started was dealing European instruments, and then it's kind of it's it's expanded quite a bit, but. Uh, uh, Something that recently that my mom has brought into the picture um, is the the educational aspect, which uh, is huge for for us as a business. And she wrote a beginning horn method book called Recipe for Success um, uh, very recently, and it's done really well. There's really nothing quite like it on the market. Um, if you imagine like something like Essential Elements, but it's geared towards young French horn players. And uh, it's also meant to be used with a, with a teacher or a band director. Um, and it's a 200 plus page book. It's, it's, it's very thorough and answers a lot of questions that a lot of, uh, you know, horn is a little bit different than a lot of the other brass instruments. We are bear, bell, bell faces the wrong way, you know, <laughs> yeah, hand right. in the bell. It's the, the posture is different. The, the entire angle of approach in terms of uh, you know, the mouthpiece is different. So we realized there was a real lack of uh, sort of accessible books for beginning horn players. And so my mom and her co-author spent, who are both teachers, um, spent about three years writing this book. Wow. So that's been a tremendous part. But it's, it's been doing very well. It's been very well received. And it's fun. It's like the sort of book that kids can learn and grow and it's 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 got a quirky it's got a recipe theme so it's like it's all about um the, it's broken down into like breakfast lunch and dinner and the routines are kind of taken accordingly and you so it's there's a whole sequence to the book that's really fun for kids and and it's actually really different in in the way that it's presented but again it's it's kind of back to what I was saying earlier about doing a lot of little things to build your sort of uh, your whole approach. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's basically what the, what the idea of the book is. Um, in 2012, we started working with Derek Wright, who is a horn player and he was just doing mostly web stuff for us initially and totally brilliant guy we've had the good fortune of having a lot of really amazing people be involved in the business over the years. And they seem to just kind of, it's really weird. They seem to just kind of fall from the sky. Um, <laughs> it's like, we don't really actively search out a lot of these folks, but uh, Derek is one that uh, has been tremendous asset uh, for us. And he, in fact, in 2017, he um, officially became a, uh, part owner of the business. So we now have a partnership of, uh, of owners. That's myself, my parents, Dennis and Karen Houghton, and then Derek Wright. So we all kind of decide, you know, what we're, what we're going to do, where we're going to go. And that's always, I find it interesting and challenging, especially during this time. But, uh, my week, uh, usually looks like, uh, you know, once a week I'll have, we'll have an owner's meeting and it's just the owners of the business talking maybe half an hour, maybe an hour about, you know, there's an agenda of what, what we're trying to accomplish, looking at numbers, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, 
and then we'll have a sales meeting the, the following day, which is some, somewhat expanded. So, so from those, you know, I'm able to be involved remotely, which um, was kind of unthinkable when this first started, but nowadays it's actually quite doable. And all the software we have, I can access and see all, everything that I need to see right. and do it all from Pittsburgh. Everybody else is, every, everyone else is based in, in Texas. Yeah, I was going to ask about that, like how that, how that just plays out, but it sounds like it's just easy now, almost. It's so, it's a funny thing. And, and, uh, uh, it's just amazing what you can accomplish from so far away. But I mean, we do these Zoom meetings kind of like we're doing right now. Uh, and we're seeing everybody's face and everybody gets time to talk about things. And um, so that that's sort of what a typical week looks like in a lot of ways. Um, Derek has really been able to help us get to the next level in terms of our um, uh, e-commerce and online presence and and uh, just sort of crunching the numbers. And um, I should also say that my wife is, is involved with, with this as well. She does uh, the payroll and some of the, uh, the bookkeeping type stuff. And she's also doing some school bids. So we're all, we're all involved um, on some level. Um, and Derek's wife, Casey, started working for us recently as a webmaster. So it's kind of just grown in this, in this nice network. Um, but this has been a really, you know, this, ever since this, this whole COVID thing hit, it's, it's been a challenge, uh, I think for all businesses really, but I don't think people are necessarily interested in dropping tons of cash for a, for a new instrument right now, necessarily. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's just not a good time for that. We're seeing all of these, schools uh and school programs and and professional you know musicians not not doing what they normally do um so in the recent months we've really tried to transition um to allow um to, to do the best we can to change our policies and um allow people to try equipment during this time i mean a lot of us are just kind of sitting around um, unfortunately, we have more time, I should say, at home than we did. So uh, it is a good time to to try things, and we don't want people to feel like they're going to get you know get burned, basically. Like, uh, and so we've been working to really ex expand our our offerings and our policies so that people can do that at this time. Yeah, it sounds like one of the things that makes uh, Houghton Horns as opposed to any other possible business is just like. I mean, it's not maybe not a hundred percent family owned at this point, but it's very much that sounds like that kind of vibe where it's like, you know, your wife, Derek's wife, like your parents, like there's the families are involved with the inner workings of this. And I, I, I assume to an extent you feel that provides sort of this like personal touch of like, we want to work with you. We want this to be something that benefits you and not just like, here's a trumpet if you want it cool, if not, whatever. Exactly. Yeah, that's something that we can provide and that we're we're proud of, you know, in terms of that customer experience. Um, but we want to have the same level. I mean, the, the goal is that we have the same level of uh, of ease in terms of the buying experience or the the, the customer experiences as a as a larger company, but that we also have that that focus and that uh, personal connection. So, I mean, 
it is it is a balancing act and finding also the other reasons for being you know like like what, how did we get here like we all we're all musicians basically you know we all we all came together at the end of the day because we we found music and you know it brings so much joy to our lives and and the the reality is even though it does sound corny is is that uh we want to pass that on we want to share that in in a way that benefits everyone you know and maybe that's a big audacious kind of goal but i i think i've come to realize like we need those kind of goals yeah. otherwise we're toast yeah. you know because if it's just about waking up in the morning deciding how are we going to make this sales goal or how are we going to meet this deadline with with stuff um that gets very dry very quickly and you talk you know talk to people in in sort of quote unquote real jobs you know they're they're in cubicles and they're you know maybe not now but <laughs> but uh uh you know that sort of work a day sort of corporate mentality stuff it, it come it starts to come in pretty quickly a lot of music stores are owned by musicians and uh there's you know unfortunately there's there's uh sometimes not the business acumen that you need to really be successful is not really something that musicians are, are naturally taught or or good at uh, all the time. So that's been a challenge, and I don't profess to be great at that element. Um, uh, there are other people around that we've built around, and we've we've had you know reached out to others and gotten uh, a sense from other resources um, and other team members to that that are that's their strength you know but that's a whole other challenge is how do we how do we do all this stuff education and uh maintain our goals and stay alive especially during a time when you know our our sales are down about 20% because of what's going sure. on you know another thing that where i actually came across the name of the company first was your youtube channel and seeing the what looks like these TMEA um, sort of, we'll hear a professional player play the etudes and then talk about some of the challenges and things like that, providing what looks like an incredible resource for how, like you talked about, TMEA being this thing of excellence and people are really going for it to be able to provide really high quality resources for free for these people to be able to have, like how did that come about? And just like, what does that like look like? And the response to that in general, I'm just kind of curious um, what that's looked like and been like for you guys. Yeah, that's been going on, oh boy. First time, I don't remember the first, well, officially, uh, here, here it is. I'm really bad with dates and numbers because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get confused here. But I think we've been doing this since, has to be maybe like 2000, 12 or something um, was when it first started. It first started with just horn horn etude videos. And uh, as we grew the company, we started selling, um, you know, moved into trombones, trumpets, tubas, uh, selling all those instruments as well. So this, this year uh, will actually be the first year that um, we have, uh, we'll be representing tuba, bass trombone, tenor trombone, and horn, and trumpet. Um, so that's, it's generally the biggest, probably the biggest promotional event, sort of, I guess if you can call it that, that we do. Um, it's something that kind of checks a lot of boxes in terms of it's giving back, it's education, it's um, it's giving kids that 
maybe don't have access to a teacher, especially right now, uh, personally, um, more of a the feel of getting a masterclass, a real like a private lesson, a short lesson on these these etudes, and there's so many kids preparing these etudes. Um, it's just it's kind of mind blowing, and the views and the response have been incredible over the years. Um, but it's also uh, it's um, it's a big project. Like it's something that keeps me up at night. You know, it's like it's almost that time of the year. You know, we're, we're gonna. <laughs> We're going to have to do this again. It's like climbing Mount Everest every year because it gets bigger and bigger. Right. And luckily, we have really good uh, uh, staff doing it. Uh, my just so happens my brother-in-law, who's based in Texas, Joel Smith is his name. He's a total whiz with video and and that production element of it. So he's doing those every year, and it's it's his uh, that high level of production is is uh, we owe it to him. Um, and then we have uh, per every every one of these sessions. We have uh, uh, this year. It was a little bit different with the tuba and bass trombone. We had to sort of improvise. We couldn't get everybody in one place because of COVID, and so uh, things. You know, we did what we could. When myself and John Romero, who's principal in the Met, he does the trombone etudes, and Kyle Sherman, who's principal trumpet in Fort Worth, uh, we all did those um, on site uh, at you know, with protocols in place this time. But um, you will have the performer, we'll have, Derek's usually doing the audio recording, we'll have a producer, somebody who checks to make sure that we're <laughs> playing the right notes yeah. and start, starting <laughs> and something. Because, you know, this has happened before where it's like, you know, you record the wrong cut or you, you know, you didn't get that errata that was published and oops, now, you, now you've got wrong notes. Right. It's a serious consideration and then it's all out there for the world to see. Right. So if we want to be a good resource, you've got to really check, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things to follow up on. Uh, and then you have to have a facility to do it and, and all of this. So it's a big, so I organize that every year I, among other things that I do. And it's, it's, um, it's always, it always ends up being worth it, but it is a massive ordeal, you know? Um, but I think that it's, uh, it's something that now, like you said, I mean, you, you first heard of us that way. It's, it's something that people expect and they, uh, you know, they get drawn, uh, to our business that way. And that's great. So, um, and if we're helping give back, uh, you know, essentially for free on YouTube, then, you know, all the better for the kids that are benefiting. The one thing that I try to do is, is, uh, have artists that have all, been in, all grew up in Texas. They all sure. went through that same system. So that's kind of a prerequisite for the folks that we get to record um, those etudes. Is so hopefully kids at home can say, "Hey, like they were in Allstate in 1999." You know, I can crazy. You know, um, but you know they they can they can envision themselves. You know, being a professor of of music at a university or being in a job like the Metropolitan Opera, you know, that those kids, uh, you know, those kids in Texas, uh, they come out and, and they can, they can have that level of success too. So I just think it's a cool project. Um, like you said, doing this for free is like kind of the, uh, like the, 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 the name, right? Like to provide, to go to all that work, to, to whatever it takes to do it on the financial end, making sure you're getting all the people, that you have like an actual producer to make sure it's all in the right spot. 
all to provide this thing for free and then that the goodwill that comes from it is ideally what makes it worth it. Hopefully it brings you some business, but like that's never a guarantee, right? It's never a guarantee that it's going to turn into that. And so like knowing the reason you're doing this is ideally to just provide this resource that's going to provide, yeah, goodwill, I think is such a beautiful thing. And I'm assuming to an extent it has like produce some business or I you probably wouldn't have invested so much in it over the years but I just think yeah like starting with a like a a worthy idea and letting that take you where you want to go is I think a better way to do it than like oh, I can see how this is going to bring his business we got to do this kind of thing right yeah I think you know all the people that are involved I mean that's that's the way that I pitch it to them you know is you know we can't afford to pay uh, all of these artists, what they're worth. I mean, they're agreeing to do this for a fee, but it's it's not that much. I mean, we I, I tell them right up front, it's like, this is going to be a bit of giving back for, on your part, you know? And they all believe in it. They say, yeah, let's do it, you know, which is really cool. Yeah. I mean, especially you look at somebody like John Romero, who's principal trombone in the Metropolitan Opera. It's like, he has other stuff he could be doing, but he really believes in this project. He, he wants to be on board, you know, which is super cool. Um, so yeah, hopefully that um, it's just you know paying it forward a little bit, and um, and I think that uh, it's something that we're just going to keep doing it. You know, we we kind of have to at this point. People people expect it, and and the response in terms of just the views, like we know it's we know it's reaching a lot of people. So that's that's also really encouraging. I think one of my I think one of our top videos from it was from a few years ago. It just happened to be mine, but it was like, I mean, we have several of these that are even years old that continue to get views. You know, we'll do five etudes per performer uh, every year. There's three TMEA etudes and there's two ATSSB etudes, which are much shorter. And uh, but, but we wanted to make an effort to get to reach all of the kids, no matter how remote and th- their level of involvement in the system is. But I think the the top one I had was like three hundred thousand views on this one, this one eight horn etude. I thought that's that's crazy. Yeah. How did that even happen? You know. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of kids and a lot of people that that uh, it's obviously they find it helpful. Sure. They wouldn't keep watching it otherwise, yeah. right? So, so it's doing something, and, and that's that's our hope. It's it's a part of a, it's fulfilling part of our mission. So that's that's what we take away from it at the end of the day. Uh, I just have one sort of one more question to uh, sort of tie like not tie it all together, but sort of bring it to a close, and then we'll kind of talk about some of the ways people can get a hold of you. Um, you know, you've talked uh, a, a lot about your the part of you as a performer and some of the struggles and all the auditions, some of the early success, but then some of the struggle of having a little bit of difficulty figuring it out once you got the job, and obviously being successful with Pittsburgh means that like you kept fighting, you kept doing it, you kept trying to figure it out and you were able to be fortunate and win that job. And now with the business, like there's a lot of growth that you've experienced, but it's not just a continually straight line upwards. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious if you have uh, encouragement from like whatever your perspective is for people, especially now in the, in the pandemic, but anybody who feels like they're fighting an uphill battle right now, if you have any encouragement for people that they might be able to kind of walk away feeling like it's worth it to keep fighting. Yeah. Well, this too shall pass, you know, at some point. And I think that if, (laughs) it's easier said than done, but 
we have to see some silver lining here. I mean, it's important to pour yourself into things that you wouldn't ordinarily get to do, you know, and, uh, and maybe that's a luxury and maybe that sounds a certain way, um, to, to some people, but I think we all have maybe a little more time that in the course of a day. I mean, uh, and, and even if you have 20, 20 extra minutes, I mean, you, you can start learning a language. You can, you can figure out a software program. You can, you know, or you can, you know, call a friend, you know, that you, you haven't spoken to in a while. Um, that's really important. I, I don't know. I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but I kind of feel like a lot of, a lot of the negative side of what I've seen during this time is that people get online and through social media, which I'm not sure that it's a great experiment so far. I don't think it's going very well in a lot of ways. I mean, there's a lot of positives, right? But it's, boy, it can get really nasty and it can give you a really distorted view of what's going on. But I found that, um, you know, I'm fortunate that I have big family here. We're all under one roof and, and, uh, you know, it's their struggles, but that personal interaction is really important. And even if you can't see someone physically, you know, catching up and calling them on the phone, I mean, that, that's huge these days. You know, it's, it's a lot different than posting on Facebook or, or Twitter. Um, you know, I think that in some ways that, that, that is just, it's really, this time has proven to me that there's, that's not a substitute for, for that person-to-person interaction, you know, calling up a friend that maybe you haven't talked to in a while or a family member and just saying, Hey, you know, how you doing? You know, and, and everybody, that's, that's everybody's favorite question these days is how you doing. And I think most of us are lying when we say fine, you yeah. know, cause none of us are really fine. I mean, this is, this has been a difficult slog for everybody in, in different ways. But, um, you know, I, I think that the only way we get through it is by, keeping those connections alive and having real discussions between real people rather than this sort of, you know, some of the garbage that you see online. And it's, you know, it's, it's gotten really, really bad lately. And I, I think it, it has to do with people feeling cooped up and, and stuck in life, you know. So I, I guess I try to, I do a lot of with the business with social media because we're trying to reach people. But other than that, I've tried to kind of take a step back from it. And I've been much happier and more productive in other ways since I've been able to do that. Like even just doing this with you and getting to know you. I mean, it's, this is, I'd much rather spend my time doing this than, than getting on one of many outlets of social media, you know, and, and deciding what to be angry about. I don't know. So <laughs> yeah, totally. But it seems like that's, that's a, that's a real problem these days. So I would say, uh, to stay positive and to maybe just take a step back from some of these distractions in our lives. Yeah, I think it's great advice, especially the 20 minutes a day. What could you, you know, what things have you always wanted to do? I had a client who we sort of, I asked him when a day goes well, what does that look like? We kind of drew out what his day looks like. And then we had an extra like hour or hour and a half at night. And I was like, we're just going to call that personal development. Like, what have you always wanted to do? And he's like, I kind of want to learn a language. And so I was like, cool, now you have time to learn a language, you know, and just things like that. I think realizing that that's a part of what this time could offer us. Um, could, yeah, like you said, almost feel like we have a little bit more control over what's going on. Yeah, very cool. 
Um, okay, so let's start with the business. If people are interested in uh, get you know being in contact about uh, in, you know whether it's buying an instrument or like you were talking about seeing what these uh, changes in policy are to be able to try something out, just whatever they might be interested, how would they get uh, in touch with you, or where would they find that information? Best thing to do is visit houghtonhorns.com. Um, from that website, uh, you can contact us. You can also visit us on Facebook. We have an Instagram account as well, so you can follow us in those places as well. But um, really, the website is the best place to start. Um, again, we're trying to be really um, accommodating. So uh, even if with that 20 minutes that you've got, you know, if you're thinking like, hey, I, I haven't tried a new mouthpiece or switched mouthpieces in 20 years, maybe I should try some, something, right? So this would be a good opportunity these days we can ship you, in, in almost every case, ship you a mouthpiece for free. You can try it, and if you absolutely hate it, you can send it back, uh, and the, the return shipping is free. So mm. things like that, um, we're just trying to make people aware that we offer those types of services. So so again, something else you can do that it might enrich your uh, as, as a musician, as a player, as a brass player, you know, might enrich the time that you have um, you know, trying out some things that you may have been curious about, but just never got to, you know, this, this is a perfect time to do that. So houghtonhorns.com would be the place to go. And then if somebody has listened to this and they've thought I've really connected with Mark's message and they want to get in touch with you personally, is there a way that they can do that? Um, you can email me at mark at houghtonhorns.com. Um, and I also pretty much, I mean, if you just, just the contact form through the website, I, I, I see most of that stuff. Um, I'm also on a couple other platforms, but I think, I, I think that's pretty, that's pretty adequate. Um, you could go to the Pittsburgh Symphony website. I think there's a link there. I also teach horn at Duquesne University. So, um, I'm always trying to remind folks about that and, uh, so there's there's a way to contact me through um, the Mary Papert School of Music at Duquesne University as well. So sure. So if uh, anything Mark said, I feel like there's a lot of just really honest and authentic information. You know, like that. I think sometimes people get the idea that like when you win a job, like you're ready and you've got it all figured out. And in my experience, it's that's not been remotely the case. So. Um, just this idea that we're start, you know trying to be open and vulnerable about it's it's a process no matter what stage you're at. I, I'm really appreciative myself, and I hope my listeners are appreciative too of that message that you're saying that like I've had success, but it's come with a lot of you know learning and stuff like that. So I appreciate that. If you need to get in touch with me, you can do that on that'snotspit.com or on Facebook and Instagram at that'snotspit. Uh, if you enjoyed the episode, uh, if you want to leave a rating and a review on iTunes, that'd be pretty awesome. And don't forget to share this episode on social media. Mark, one more time, thank you so much for being on this on the show and doing this episode with me. It's been really great to chat with you. Yeah, my pleasure. Great to get to know you. And thanks so much for making the time for yeah, me. Absolutely. I'd like to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And most of all, I would like to thank you for listening. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time.